0: You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students.
2: Just a kid. A
0: welcome to another episode of you must remember this the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is another installment in our ongoing series, Charles Manson's Hollywood. We've spent a lot of time over the past half dozen episodes on Charles Manson and his followers trying to explain what was going on with them in the years and days leading up to the crimes that made them famous, in the hope that doing so would help us understand events that otherwise seem insane. Today we're going to put the family aside for a couple of episodes, and begin to talk about the victims of the Manson family. And because this is a podcast about Hollywood, we're going to focus primarily on the victims who were part of the entertainment industry and its surrounding social scene people whose own lives and careers have been eclipsed by the horrible way in which they died. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind, flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. People rarely mention the name Sharon Tate in a context other than the fact that she was killed by the Manton family. And if they do, it's almost always in the context of her being the wife of filmmaker Roman Polanski. Today we're going to talk about who Sharon Tate was before Charles Manson, and before she was Mrs. Polanski. We're also going to talk about Jay Sebring, a man who Tate was extremely close to, who today is also best known as a Manson victim. Even though he carved out enough of a niche for himself in the L.A. scene of the 1960s that he was filmed at work in his hair salon for the documentary Mondo Hollywood, and several years later, Warren Beatty would make a movie inspired in part by Sebring's life, work, and personality. The 1975 movie Shampoo, directed by Hal Ashby and written by and starring Beatty as a Lothario hairdresser, was on its surface a movie which had nothing to do with Manson and his murders, other than that it captured what Los Angeles was like in the fall of 1968, during, arguably, the last moments of freewheeling optimism before the curtain of the 60s fell. But the Manson murders played a significant role in the film's development. Sebring wasn't the only inspiration for the film. Original writer Robert Town had met another male hairdresser, Jean Shakov, who rode a motorcycle and had a shop full of gorgeous women, and husbands trusted him with their wives because it was assumed that a male hairdresser must be gay. That trust was misguided. Sebring was a ladies' man too, although, as we'll see, he had a great love that got away. In any case, Beatty and Town had started working on shampoo while Sebring was alive. But the massacre of Sebring and his friends had a deep impact on Beatty, and at one point there was a version of Shampoo which was to almost directly dramatize Sebring's real-life fate, with its story spanning several months, and dealing with the Sebring-like character's descent into drugs and crime. As Beatty put it, Shampoo originally, quote, headed towards an apocalyptic ending— But by 1971, when Beatty finally sat down to rewrite Town's script, when he looked back at the 60s, the apocalyptic event that ruined everything, in his mind, wasn't the Manson killings. It was the election of Richard Nixon as president almost a full year before Sebring's murder. Beatty reconfigured the film as a kind of Hollywood version of Jean Renoir's The Rules of the Game, which followed the social lives of the French bourgeoisie frittering away their time frivolously while Hitler was taking over Europe. In this analogy, Hollywood in the late 1960s was a place full of young, beautiful people with tons of money who thought of themselves as anti-establishment. And yet, when the establishment tried to reassert itself by putting an enemy to their revolution in power, all the self-styled revolutionaries were too busy with sex and drugs and style to do anything about it. To Beatty, it was indicative of Hollywood's narcissism, that the community thought it was the murder of an actress and a hairdresser that ended the dream, when in fact, the election of a warmongering super-capitalist creep clearly had a much bigger impact— which became clear by 1972, when Nixon was reelected in a landslide. Of course, it does take a narcissist to know one. This series is about Charles Manson as a Hollywood pilgrim, and the Manson murders as a Hollywood story. And the thing that made Hollywood itself pay attention to the story was the fact that the Manson family had gone into one of their homes and killed everyone they found there. Before the Manson murders, there was a sense around town of wanting to be open to new experiences and new ideas and new people, of sharing and pursuing freedom from the old way of doing things, by any means necessary. Despite all the longing for deep thoughts and feelings, the ties that bound people to one another were relatively superficial. You could tell who was on your side by their hair and the way they dressed. After the Manson murders, all of that changed. Nobody knew who they could trust anymore. You certainly couldn't trust your fellow hippies. And that sense that the enemy could be amongst us bled into the films of the 1970s, from The Godfather to Serpico to Chinatown and Shampoo. It was the murder of Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, and three others at a house subleased by Roman Polanski in the wee hours of August 9th, 1969, that ended the 60s in Hollywood. Inspiring young filmmakers to look at the world around them and take stock. And thus, it was the murder of a movie star and a hairdresser and their friends which brought on the paranoid and unusually sophisticated and adult commercial cinema of the 1970s. So join us, won't you, as we meet Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring. Sharon Tate was born in Houston. Her dad, Paul Tate, was a high-ranking military intelligence officer, and the family moved as his work demanded. When Sharon was 15, the Tates relocated to Washington State, where Sharon competed in beauty pageants and posed provocatively on the cover of the military magazine, Stars and Stripes. The following year, the family was uprooted again when Paul was transferred to a base in Verona, Italy. Sharon was growing up to be a leggy five-foot-five with natural honey-blonde hair, making her a perfect specimen of the standard of beauty which would come into vogue in the early 1960s. Already, in high school, she turned heads when she walked into a room. Schoolboys and grown men alike would become tongue-tied trying to talk to her. Her suitors had a reason to be intimidated. In order to go out with Sharon Tate, you had to meet Paul Tate. Sharon's dad was brusque, very strict— and, she thought, impossible to please. She loved him, but she was also a little afraid of him. While they were in Italy, Sharon went on a date with a young soldier, and that night, Sharon was raped. She didn't tell anyone because she was embarrassed and she didn't want to humiliate her father. But keeping this secret wore on Sharon adding to the trauma of the assault itself. Already shy, she became painfully insecure. Very soon thereafter, Sharon was one of dozens of local teens recruited as extras for an American film shooting nearby, called Adventures of a Young Man, starring Paul Newman and Richard Boehmer. This was spring 1961, a few months before Boehmer would emerge as a semi-major star in the film of West Side Story. He took an instant liking to Sharon, and the two dated throughout the film shoot. Boehmer told Sharon that she was pretty enough to be in pictures, and if that was a line, she didn't realize it. The idea of becoming an actress gave Sharon a fantasy of escape. Escaping her own self-loathing, escaping into a world in which being beautiful made her special and valuable, instead of a target. Soon Tate was given a non-speaking part in Barnabas, a biblical epic filming in Verona. Barnabas's star, Jack Palance, also became enamored of Sharon, and in the course of courting her, Palance arranged a screen test for Sharon in Rome. But nothing came of either the relationship with Palance or the screen test, maybe because Sharon was still attached to Baymer. When Baymer returned to Los Angeles after his film wrapped, 18-year-old Sharon followed him telling her parents she was going to look at colleges. Bamer connected Sharon to his agent, Harold Gefsky, who signed the blonde beauty right away and moved her into the Hollywood Studio Club, a ladies-only apartment building popular with new-in-town wannabe actresses. With no money for a car or cab fare, Sharon would hitchhike to auditions. The men were so generous, she'd remember later, especially the truck
2: drivers to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast. All lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast.
0: It's important to not mince words here. Sharon Tate was really Really, really good-looking. Even by the standards of Hollywood, the city to which every best-looking girl from every American small town would flock looking for stardom, Sharon was so good-looking that she had a unique experience of the world. Restaurant owners would comp her meals, just because. When she bought paint for her new apartment, the kid working at the hardware store offered to come back and paint Sharon's walls for her. Sharon was so beautiful that it was easy for her to walk into a casting room and make a good impression, but she really had no acting experience or training, her nerves were paralyzing, and she was kind of a rube. She had her first cigarette on the set of a cigarette commercial, another actress on the shoot taught Sharon how to inhale, and the first burst of smoke made her pass out. Sharon soon caught the attention of a guy named Marty Ransehoff, who was head of the production company Filmways, the outfit responsible for early 60s TV hits like Mr. Ed and the Beverly Hillbillies. Marty Ransehoff's personal specialty was creating and promoting new starlets. By the time Sharon came around, he already had Anne-Margaret and Tuesday Weld on his resume. Marty Ransehoff put Sharon under contract. She was paid a weekly salary, and most of her days were full of classes. Dance classes, voice classes, acting classes, and exercise classes. Because you could always improve upon a perfect physique. But interestingly, Ransehoff wouldn't allow Sharon to rely entirely on her luminous looks. He got her bit parts on Mr. Ed and the Beverly Hillbillies, but he insisted that she play the parts wearing a dark wig, in which she looked merely cute instead of retina-burningly gorgeous. Sharon's sole source of confidence was her beauty, but it was also a major source of anxiety for her. People projected so much onto her because of the way she looked, and Sharon lived in fear of disappointing those expectations. She had very little faith in her own ability to actually do anything, and in fact, she was so private and reserved that her acting teachers were often frustrated. Sometimes it seemed like she was incapable of showing emotion. That definitely wasn't the case. By this time, Sharon's relationship with Richard Boehmer had run its course, and she was now involved with a French actor named Philippe Forquet. Sharon and Philippe had an incredibly passionate relationship, and an often volatile one. According to Forquet, they were mutually abusive. At one point, after a fight, Forquet had beaten Tate badly enough that she had to go to the emergency room. When she got out, she didn't end the relationship, much to the chagrin of her mother, who thought that Philippe was a major impediment to Sharon's career. But her career didn't seem to be going anywhere, and her confidence was at an all-time low. And then, Sharon Tate met Jay Sebring. By 1964, Jay Sebring had already lived a couple of lifetimes. Born Thomas Cummer in Detroit, Jay spent four years in the Navy in Korea, where he learned how to cut hair. When he returned to the States, he changed his name, borrowing Sebring from a racetrack in Florida, and began to reinvent himself as a hairdresser to the stars. Kirk Douglas was instrumental in this reinvention. He hired Jay to design his hair for the Stanley Kubrick film Spartacus. And soon thereafter, Jay opened his own salon, Sebring International. Located on Fairfax near Melrose, the salon had a stained glass window with an Egyptian ankh in the center. The interior was wood paneled. There were three doors, one that the public used, an inner door to the private room where Sebring cut hair, and then the secret door Sebring and his lovers used to come and go. Sebring wasn't just in it for the girls. He wanted to change the way men thought about their hair. He wasn't a barber, or, God forbid, a hairdresser. He thought of himself as a hair architect. He pioneered the practice of giving men shampoos. No one had done that before because you couldn't put a man under one of those bubble helmet hairdryers. But Jay figured out that in Europe, they were starting to use cheap, portable, handheld hairdryers. Jay bought a ton of them, used them on his clients, and sold them to converts at cost. For the first time, for men, getting a haircut wasn't just a necessary maintenance thing, like going to a dentist. It became a luxury service that rich and famous dudes wanted. Jay's salon was more like going to the Playboy Club than going to the corner barber shop. A barber was like a doctor in a white lab coat. Jay, who wore tailored blue jeans and chambray shirts from Fred Siegel, was like a role model. Jay's salon was full of gorgeous shampoo girls. You could sip coffee or champagne while you were being worked on. And you paid real money for it. A barber charged $1.50. Jay charged $25 and hundreds of dollars for hairpieces, a field in which he also pioneered advances, arguably extending the careers of stars from Frank Sinatra to Rock Hudson. Within a couple of years, Sebring was doing the hair of every man who mattered. Warren Beatty and Steve McQueen were clients who became friends, and if the price was right, he'd make house calls. Jay started flying to Vegas every three weeks to cut the heads of the Rat Pack. It was Jean Shaykov, another stud Los Angeles hairdresser, who told Jay about Sharon. Jean said that there was this new actress that everyone was talking about, that she was maybe the most beautiful woman in the world. Sebring became determined to win this prize. He asked his friend Joe Himes, a celebrity journalist, to arrange an introduction. Himes set up an interview with Sharon at a trendy Sunset Strip restaurant. Jay showed up during the interview, as if bumping into Himes on accident. He sat down next to Sharon, and they got along right away. Haim's left them alone together. The next day, he called Jay to see how it went, and Sharon answered the phone. Jay was an exciting guy to be around, and part of his cool factor lay in the ways in which he seemed to court danger, darkness, even death. He drove a race car on the streets of L.A. He lived in a Benedict Canyon mansion that had previously belonged to Jean Harlow, and, briefly, her second husband, Paul Byrne. Byrne was found dead in the house two months after he and Harlow married. From a gunshot wound which was determined based on a note found at the scene— to have been self-inflicted, although for decades there has been speculation that Byrne was murdered. The house was thereafter considered haunted and cursed. At least three people went on to die in the house before Sebring moved in, two by their own hands. Jay had a macabre side, and he loved his house's history. Sharon believed that she had seen the ghost of what she'd call a creepy little man in the house a man which she assumed was Paul Byrne. Jay was also into all kinds of drugs. Pot, acid, mescaline, speed, cocaine. He became known around town as the guy to call if he were someone who didn't want to associate with an actual drug dealer. And in fact, Jay reportedly served as the middleman on so many deals that there were rumors that Sebring Salon was a front for laundering drug money. Steve McQueen's first wife, Neely admitted that she came to resent Jay's visits to their house to cut Steve's hair, because she knew that packed in with his scissors, Jay kept little bags of cocaine. Jay turned Sharon on to his preferred ways of partying, and she'd later say that she thought experimenting with drugs had been good for her. She described herself as having been, quote, a very tight knot, and said that drugs open the world to me. She was less enthusiastic about Sebring's other little quirk, his taste for S&M. Sharon went along with what Jay wanted to do. As liberated as she was in some ways, Sharon was both old-fashioned and very of her time in that she believed that men wanted women to be compliant. But Jay's fetishes were his, and not hers. The McQueens used to hang out with and vacation with Sharon and Jay, and the foursome once took LSD together. Sharon, Neely McQueen remembered, seemed willing to do anything Jay asked her to do. In 1965, Sharon finally got her first real movie role, when Marty Ranzahoff cast her as a beautiful blonde witch in a horror movie he was producing, called "Eye of the Devil." The shoot was in England and France, and Jay flew out to London with Sharon. Sharon took to London immediately, particularly the mod fashion of miniskirts and go-go boots. But after a little while, Jay had to return to his work in L.A., and when he left, he asked his friend Victor Lowndes, the founder of London's Playboy Club, to look after Sharon. This was a fateful decision. It was at a lunch party at Victor's place that Sharon first met Roman Polanski.
1: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. In
0: 1965, Roman Polanski was riding high on the success of his first English-language film, the Catherine Deneuve-starring paranoid thriller Repulsion. Now the toast of London and a recently divorced incorrigible Playboy – He had come a long way from the Polish ghetto, where as a child he scavenged for food and saw Nazis drag his mother off to a concentration camp. After repulsion became a sensation in spite or because of its X rating, Polanski was swiftly signed to make two more films in London with a British production company, Cul-de-sac and the horror comedy, The Fearless Vampire Killers. The latter was to be co-produced by Marty Ransohoff, who urged Polanski to cast Tate in the female lead. On their first meeting at Victor Lowndes' lunch, Polanski had noticed Sharon's beauty, but otherwise hadn't thought much of her. They had a couple of false starts. But urged on by Ransohoff, they kept trying. And at their third dinner, Sharon got to talking about how beneficial she had found her experiences with LSD, Polanski had had the opposite experience. He'd taken acid three times and had three bad trips. But Sharon convinced him that he should try it again. That night, with her. They bought a sugar cube from a friend of Polanski's, went to his place, and split it. Right away, Sharon started feeling guilty, She told Roman about Jay, who she was still involved with, although by now it had been months since they had been together in the same city. Polanski dealt with this revelation in the logical way. He went into another room for a minute, came back wearing a Frankenstein mask, crept up behind Sharon, and shouted at her. Still tripping, Tate was terrified. Accounts vary as to what happened next. Tate either spent the next hour sobbing, or she fled Polanski's apartment and ran all the way to her own. Or she stayed, and she and Roman made love. That last story made it into Polanski's autobiography, with Polanski noting that the drugs had lent their lovemaking a touch of unreality. Before writing his autobiography, Roman had told police that he and Sharon hadn't slept together until months after they first met. In his book... He notes that after that night, Sharon broke date after date with him, until finally he said to her,
2: Okay, Sharon, why don't you go fuck yourself?
0: And then she got really interested in him. Sometime after that, despite misgivings that she wasn't Jewish-looking enough for the role, Polanski agreed to give Sharon a screen test for the fearless vampire killers. And with the screen test, she earned the part. The Fearless Vampire Killers was shot near a ski resort in Italy, in the middle of winter. At first, Polanski was very hard on Sharon, forcing her to perform dozens of takes, sometimes leaving her in tears. But over time, she got better at giving Polanski what he wanted, and Polanski, who was not in the habit of letting gorgeous women go unseduced, eventually made a move. From then on out, for the rest of the shoot, Roman and Sharon were together every night, Jay might have literally been a sadist, but in a sense, that was just play. He was also very loving and worshipful of Sharon. He wanted to marry her, and more importantly, he wanted to be a husband to her. In contrast, Roman Polanski loved women, but he didn't always seem to like them. He would boast to journalists that he'd never found a woman who was his intellectual superior. I do dominate them, he'd say, and they like it. Of Sharon specifically, he admired her innate understanding that, as he put it, It's
2: feminine not to try to compete with men and seem dominating.
0: In fact, with Polanski, Sharon played the role of what we'd today call the cool girl, the kind who allows boys to be boys and promises not to change or constrain their mate. In what seems to have been a fateful conversation, Sharon told Roman, I don't want to smother you. I just want to be with you. Roman said, "Do You know how I am. I screw around. Sharon said, I don't want to change you. Roman believed her. He believed she didn't really care about his fidelity to her, or lack thereof, that she only wanted him to be happy. He didn't understand that this was her way of reeling him in. And In fact, Sharon's refusal to assert what she really wanted early in their relationship would come back to hurt her later. In April 1967, Sharon moved into Roman's London flat. Together, they made the London scene, going to the same parties and clubs as members of the Beatles, throwing dinner parties for Yule Brenner and Warren Beatty. They were photographed everywhere, Sharon always in her miniskirts. Roman gave an interview to the Saturday Evening Post in their apartment, during the course of which he berated Sharon for not stocking the fridge with liquor and demanded from the bathtub that she bring him a cup of tea. Things were different in 1967, what with no internet, but it's still impressive that Sharon apparently managed to carry on this affair for a while in the bright light of the London media, without actually breaking up with her long-term boyfriend, Jay Sebring. Eventually, she called Jay and told him their relationship was over. Jay got on the next plane to London to try to talk her out of it. He wanted to marry her, he said, Sharon tried to let him down easy, but Jay didn't believe that Sharon had fallen out of love with him so easily. He wanted to meet the guy she'd left him for. So, much to Roman's annoyance, Sharon told Jay to meet them for lunch. Polanski and Tate were settled in a booth at their favorite place when Jay came breezing into the restaurant. He kissed Sharon hello and extended his hand to Roman. "'I just wanted to meet you,' Sebring said." He sat down and started giving Polanski the third degree, more like an older brother than a jilted suitor. Finally, Jay gave his blessing. I dig you, man, he told Roman Polanski. I dig you. Sebring was thus accepted into Polanski's inner circle. He transitioned from Sharon's boyfriend into her best friend, and according to some, a third wheel in Tate's upcoming marriage. The first few months of Polanski and Tate's relationship were absolutely idyllic. Even though they were apart much of the time, as when Tate had to go back to LA to run around in a bikini on the set of the creaky beach comedy Don't Make Waves while Polanski stayed in London to finish Vampire Killers, their absences made them more mad for one another. It was when Roman and Sharon tried to settle down together in Los Angeles that things got complicated. Next week, we'll continue the story of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski's romance, through their marriage, Rosemary's Baby, Valley of the Dolls, and the fateful summer of 1969. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. We had a very special guest. Rom Bergman played Roman Polanski. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, You can rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe to us there or on the podcatcher of your choice. And if you're a writer, blogger, or fellow podcaster, and you'd like to write about the show or talk to me about it, get in touch with us. You can always email me at karina.longworth at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.